0: I feel, uh, uh, I feel it's important to, to kind of reiterate something that Jesse just said in his prayer, that as we come into this moment, as we come into this time and we, we contemplate the Word of God, that our hearts would be about contemplating God, that our hearts would be about dwelling on Him, on His nature, on who He is. That. Um, the presence of God in our lives is precious. The presence of God in our lives is something that is to be cherished. And too often, we come into um, church together. Too often, we as Christians get to a point in which we feel um, uh, hardened, unaware of the precious nature of our relationship with our heavenly Father. And so I want to encourage you um, this morning as we enter in and talk about the Word of God that your hearts will be opened up to what it is He may be wanting to say to you because His presence is here. His presence is here to work in you as we allow ourselves to be influenced by His Word. Dearly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity to be challenged by it. We thank You, Lord, that each one of us, is, those of us who have given our hearts to You, those of us who have chosen to, to bow our knee before you, to be given to you, are blessed by the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word. In your name we pray, amen. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. By every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. We are coming back to a series we began a few weeks ago, while we were uh, solely online. It was uh, it was a series that we started uh, while we were still all kind of separated, and um, the title of the series is "Do the Work." And in this series, we are looking at what it takes to build up the church. What it takes to perfect the church, as it says here. To bring it to completion and make make it whole. What it takes to mature the church. Now, this is an interesting question, isn't it? All of us, as we live in the church, as we're part of the church, as we're part of the body of Christ, this idea of what it takes to be healthy, what it takes to be mature, What it takes to grow is something that's always kind of in the background of our thoughts as we're part of a church, right? How many of you want to be a part of a a healthy church? How many of you are going, I'd prefer to be a part of an unhealthy church? That's what I'm looking for, right? So for all of us, there's an underlying motivation to say, I want to be a part of a church that's healthy. I want to be a part of a church that's maturing and that's growing, What does it take to mature the church? What does it take to be a healthy church? This, I think, is a, is a really good clarification. When I read this passage, it's this, it's this great recalibration of our view of what it takes to be a healthy church. What does it take for the church of Christ to be healthy? What, what is it that builds up the body of Christ? What is it that makes the church mature? I said the first week of this series, um, and, and I want you to have this in the back of your mind as we, as we come back to this series. I said the first week that I can remember it in a previous incarnation of my life when I was involved in sales, I can remember hearing repeatedly over and over again whenever I go to sales meetings, whenever I go to sales seminars, and they would say to me, the, 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 the key to your success is planning your work and then working your plan. How many of you ever heard that before in your business world? key to your success is, is planning your work and then work your plan. I said when we started this series that I really believe that this passage gives us the Holy Spirit's plan for the success of the church, for the health of the church, for the maturing of the church. And so we have to commit ourselves to working this plan. And what is the plan? It's really important as we have this conversation that we highlight how this plan works. As I read this, it does start with what we would understand as ministers. That's what many of us would understand or see as professional ministers, people who kind of get paid to do this thing or that have been clearly identified as the guys who stand in the front, the guys who stand up, the the gals who take the position that we all kind of look to and say, those are the ministers. And we tend to see those people as the key to the growth. We tend to see those people as as the key to the maturing of the body, of of the health of the body. If we've got a really good pastor who does works really hard and, and says the right things and makes the right decisions, that's how we get to a place of having a healthy church. But the health of the church is going to be determined by the guy who's standing up here or the people who are making the final decisions or the people who are leading us in worship or the people who are in the front. They're the ones who are going to make a healthy church. But is that really the plan that we see laid out before us? Is it really those who are, are the, are the um, front men, the pastors, the senior guy that makes the church healthy? Because as I read this, if you take notice of this, they're not the reason the church matures and grows. They're simply the starting point. They equip the saints who do the work of the ministry that builds up the body. The saints doing the ministry helps the church grow up from childhood to not be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine that are not not drawn away by deceitful schemes. The, the, The saints doing the work of the ministry, speaking truth in love, so that we all may grow up into the image of Christ, is the plan that's laid out in front of us. If the growth of the church rests solely or even primarily with the pastor, the church will never achieve the fullness of Christ that is the inheritance of the church. That's the declaration that's here. He's saying, listen, what we're trying to get you to what we, what we want to accomplish, what it means to be healthy, is we want you to have the fullness of Christ alive in you. We want a church that is growing towards the image of Jesus Christ. And he says the plan is the pastors, the evangelists, the, the prophets, the teachers, they, they, they help. They, 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 they bring healing to, is really what that word is, when it, when it, when it talks about the building up of the saints. When it talks about when it talks about the, the 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 pastors equipping the saints, it's really talking about bringing healing to the saints, who then do the work of the ministry that bring us to this maturity. Because that is the plan. That, because that is the plan that's laid out in front of us. That we're supposed to be working. That that pastors, that teachers, that evangelists equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. We have to work that plan. I asked you guys the question earlier, how many people want to be a part of a healthy church? Well, here's our plan. It takes the saints to do the work of the ministry. It takes the saints to to intercede in prayer. It takes the saints to encourage the struggling. It takes the saints to reach out to the lost and the hurting. It takes the saints to speak truth in love. It takes the saints to illuminate the word of God. It takes the saints. You can't see your participation in church the way you see your participation in, a the- in going to a theater or going to a sporting event or even in a school setting. You can't come here and sit and watch and think that, Attentive listening and and enthusiastic singing is enough. Church is not a spectator sport. Now, as I say this, I I want you to think about your approach to church. I I want you to to sincerely examine. This is why I, I felt let of the holy spirit to pray in the very beginning that we would that we would open ourselves up that we would that we would really examine ourselves i want to invite you to really look at your own heart and at your own life and the way in which you engage as a member of the body of christ it takes the saints to do the work of the ministry it takes the saints It's even in that word that's used here that we we have to draw a great deal of inspiration and responsibility for the spiritual development of both ourselves and of others. Paul chooses the word saints here for a reason. Or more accurately, he, he chose the word hagios for a reason. Hagios literally means set apart or sanctified for a special purpose. Now, hear that idea. Set apart, sanctified for a special purpose. How many of you rejoice in the reality that when the Bible says saints, it's talking about you, right? I don't know about you, but when I sit and I think about that, I'm like, man, it's not that the label saint isn't, isn't, isn't set apart for St. Francis, right, or St. Michael, or these people who, I, who we look to have done these amazing things. When the Word of God talks about saints, he's talking about us. How many of you rejoice in the fact that you have been set apart, We as Christians love that idea. We rejoice in that idea. How many of you are glad that you've been set apart by the grace of Jesus Christ in your life? How many are glad of that? We have been set apart. The Word of God says we are saints in that nature. We have been set apart by what Jesus Christ has done in us. But the idea that is expressed in the word hagios, in the word translated as saint is, it doesn't stop with the idea that you've been set apart. It says you have been set apart for a special purpose. You can't separate these two ideas. Yes, you were set apart. This, this idea should give you echoes of, of, of the last two weeks as I taught on the concept of the world. It should should bring your mind back to that. You have been set apart. You've been set apart from what? What have we been set apart from? Now, now as I said, you've been set apart. Do you rejoice in that? Do you take joy in the fact that you've been set apart? Well, what have you been set apart from? Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 15? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you know what you've been set apart from? The world. We've been taken out of the world and we've been set apart for a special purpose. Do you remember what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2? One of the great passages that, that I think for most believers, your, your heart rises up with the concept of our being set apart. When he said, but you... Are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out. Or we've been set apart from, called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When we talk about us being set apart, when we talk about us being called out, doesn't that verse get you excited? You have been set apart. You've been called out of darkness into a marvelous light. You once weren't a people, but now you're people because you didn't have the mercy of God. And now you have the mercy of God. He sets us apart fully and completely. As Romans 8:30 says, so those whom God set apart, he called. And those he called, he put right with himself. And he shared glory with them. We see that. We rejoice in that. We love that. But he set us apart for a purpose: we are saints set apart for a special purpose what is that purpose why why are we set apart now i want you to take a few moments to rest on that why did he save you this is a question that gets to the very heart of our salvation Why did God save us? Why did he set us apart? Why did he call us out of darkness? Why did he bring us into a marvelous light? There there are, I believe, two fundamental reasons God set us apart. And they're both revealed, I think, in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I want to remind you, Ephesians chapter 2 is just two chapters before what we open the service with in Ephesians chapter 4. And so you got to remember, these things are all kind of tied together, They're all connected one with another. He, he said the Paul sat down and wrote this letter to the church of Ephesus, and it's a letter. It's not broken up. It's not like, well, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea, broken up by chapters. He's coming through and he's saying, this is what you've got to understand about what it means to be the church. And so Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, he says, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now stop there because that's your first answer. Why did he set us apart? Why are you saved? So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What is the reason that is revealed here? What is the reason why he saved you? Why he set you apart? To reveal His nature. To to show that He is richly merciful. That's an important thing for us as Christians to understand and to remember. One of the primary reasons God saved you, the reason He sent His Son to come, was because He wanted to declare to everyone through you how merciful He is. How gracious He is. How loving he is. See, none of you deserved it. None of you were good enough. None of you were smart enough. None of you were holy enough. I don't know if you guys realize this, but our salvation didn't come because God like, scanned the globe and said, who's the most holy? Oh, Bruce is amazing. Amazing. Bruce is as much like me as anyone I've ever known. Bruce, I want you to come to me. The whole idea behind this, the whole concept behind this was so that God, by saving you, would show how merciful and gracious he is by looking at you and saying, you don't deserve this. you're, You're steeped in your sin, you're steeped in your darkness, but I have called you out. I called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. I I set you apart, and I want you to be able to be the declaration of my grace and my mercy. How many of you reflect on the life you had, or the life you have, or the person you are, and you sit and you say, I am a declaration of the mercy of God. I promise you that. This was Paul's declaration about himself, right? Right? He said, I was the chiefest of sinners. And yet the mercy and grace of God was enough to cover me. How many of you can identify with that? He saved us. So that in saving us, he reveals his mercy. He reveals his grace. He reveals his nature. This is such an important thing for us to understand as it relates to our Christian faith. It's not simply about you. This whole thing, this whole story, this whole concept isn't about you. The center of the story of the gospel isn't you. It's him. He saved you. So that he might show his mercy and his grace, his nature. There should be something deeply humbling about that reality for every believer. You're saved by his grace and his grace alone. So that he can show in you how merciful he is, how loving he is. There should be something deeply humbling about that. And that position of humility is important as you continue to read on and begin to discover the second reason why he saved you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we may walk in them. There you see the second reason he saved us. To do good works, that God be prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is not inconsequential that Ephesians 2 precedes Ephesians 4. God saved you by His grace, not because you were great or holy or smarter than everybody else, or for anything other than He wanted to show His mercy and His love in your undeserved salvation. And from that, you should do good works. Or as Ephesians 4 said, do the work of the ministry. You have been set apart by God's grace. You are a part of His family, His church, by His grace. The sin that engulfed you, that enslaved you, that that owned you, his grace called you out of. The world in which you used to be condemned. That, that position of condemnation as you were in the world has passed away and you've stepped out of darkness, having received God's truth through Jesus Christ, God's love through Jesus Christ, God's mercy through Jesus Christ. God's provision through Jesus Christ. God's correction through Jesus Christ. God's hope through Jesus Christ. God's healing through Christ's intercession. This you have received by his grace. Now in light of that truth, in light of that salvation, in light of that grace, in light of that gift, God asks us to give to others truth that saves. Love that is unconditional. Mercy that forgives offense. Provision that instills hope. An intercession that bears the burdens of others. Do you see the correlation? Do you see the relationship? He has given you grace so that you may give grace. Grace. He has revealed His love that you may show His love. He's given you forgiveness that you may live in forgiveness. We are saints set apart for a special purpose. The church needs each one of us to fulfill our purpose in doing the work of the ministry. Your brothers and your sisters need you to fulfill your purpose in doing the work of the ministry. But let me tell you something as a pastor. As someone who's done this for a lot of years, as somebody who's taken upon himself the, 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 the burden of seeing growth in people, to see development in people, that, that has spent hours praying for... He, 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 Many of you individually who have spent hours contemplating and thinking about what can, we, what can I do to get them to grow in Christ, to know Jesus, to, to, to be in a place in which they're coming to maturity and they're overcoming the things that are burdening them. Let me tell you as pastor, I am deeply convinced that you need to fulfill your purposes in doing the work of the ministry. There is nothing healthy about a Christian who sits on the sidelines. One of the first messages I ever preached on a Sunday morning when I was a youth pastor was entitled, Beer-Bellied Believers. And as I formulated the the message uh, when I was up in Minnesota, I had a very clear picture of many of the Wisconsinites I've met Over the years, particularly as it related to the times we get together and watch Packer games, how many of you guys can identify with this imagery of sitting in your in your uh, lazy boy with a with a beverage in your right hand, watching the screen as all of these incredible athletes take on the opponent and yelling and shouting at the screen at what fools they are and how they're doing a terrible job and. How they're, how they're dropping balls or how they're struggling to block the 300-pound man who moves faster than you've ever moved in your life. And you look at him and go, you're a bum! All the while taking in the entertainment and drinking and eating and drinking and eating. How healthy are you? This is the image I think we need to have when we look at how most Christians in the church Interact. Too often, we come to church and we just sit here and we take 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 and because we never give because we never exercise what God is trying to trying to say to us what God is speaking into our hearts all we do is just get bigger and bigger and bigger and you know what we end up being we end up being critical we we end up being almost useless. Because we sit back in our lazy boy and we just receive and we receive and we receive and we receive. And we never use what we're receiving. We we, we never fulfill the calling that God has for us. He set us apart for a special purpose. And that purpose is to do the work of the ministry. We have been given an amazing gift We've been given the free gift of salvation, revealing the grace of God in a mind-blowing way. Now fulfill the purpose of your salvation by doing the work of the ministry. Teach the truth of God's word to all that you come in contact with. Love in a tangible way the brothers and sisters around you. Serve the needs of your church. Minister mercy as an expression of the mercy that has transformed you. Provide for those who are lacking. Do the work of the ministry. I really believe we we need that now, maybe more than ever. We We live in a world that needs to see the church being the church. One last thought before we close. I want you to see the unique depths of this calling. The word translated as ministry in the phrase, do the work of the ministry, is the word diakonia. It's basically where we get our our, our, our word deacon from and I, and I want you to hear a commentator's illumination on the word the word diakoneia necessarily involved dependence submission and constraints of time and freedom it really it in effect meant a slave a servant the Greeks regarded diakoneia as degrading and dishonorable. Service for the public good was honored, but voluntary giving of oneself in service to one's fellow man is alien to the Greek thought. The highest goal before man was development of his own personality. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like what we see in in our modern world, doesn't it? Even amongst the Jews, the idea was foreign. Judaism adopted a philosophy of service not unlike that of the Greeks. If service was rendered at all, it was done as an act of social obligation or as an act to those more worthy. The view of service embraced by the Greeks and the Jews reflected the natural heart of man, which is why it reflects our modern views. As much as our society will, will feign to talk of service and sacrifice, it doesn't take much. There's not much surface you have to scratch below to realize it's just a facade. Most of the service and sacrifice that they speak of really ultimately is about serving themselves. It's what gets me where I need to get to or gets me what I really ultimately want whether it's people thinking more highly of myself or or, or me getting another position. There is no Christ-like servanthood, slavery for the good of others. This is why the Lord's example and teaching stand out, I think, in such brilliant contrast. By our Lord's own testimony, the Son of Man did not come to be diakonēa but to Deakanea. and to give his life a ransom for many. It's not a simple willingness to serve others, but a willingness to submit oneself, to give emptying of yourself for the good of others. This is what we were saved to. This is what we were called out for. We are called to serve, to minister. Diakoneia is modeled on the pattern and the command of Jesus Christ. And it represents the practical outworking of God's love, especially towards fellow believers. As someone once said, doing the work of the ministry is not the activity of an elite class, but the mutual caring of a band of brothers. We're his church. We've been called out for a purpose. And so each one of us in this moment have to ask ourselves whether or not we've simply taken advantage of the grace and the mercy, Rejoice in the fact that we've been called out of darkness into a marvelous light, been been moved by the fact that he cared enough about me, that he loved me enough, that he had enough mercy and grace towards me that I get to enjoy the pleasure of his presence in my life. And we've simply sat and said, I love to take it in, I love to take it in, I love to take it in. But we've refused to become the servant, the slave, the minister that he's called us to you are sanctified, you are set apart for His special purpose.